this point in the story, we ventured with Paul and his friends on two of the three missionary journeys that are likely mapped out in the back of your Bible. We've seen magicians stricken blind. We've seen Paul nearly stoned to death. We've seen the first church planted on European soil. We've seen Paul's famous speech at the Areopagus. Those are just a a few of the highlights of Paul's first two missionary journeys. Last week, if you were here, you'll recall that we got back out on the trail with Paul and his friends as we began the adventure of the third and final journey, most of which takes place in the city of Ephesus, at least in terms of, of Luke's focus as an author. And so going back to last week, we spent much of our time considering really two things associated with the early days of the Ephesian church. Number one, we looked at the contrasting work of the Holy Spirit and a spirit of evil, if you recall the story of the seven sons of Sceva. We looked at the contrast between the power of the devil and the effects of sin on the one hand and the power of the spirit and the effects of salvation on the other hand. That was one thing that we looked at. And if you were here last week, I don't know about you, but I was incredibly encouraged to see that contrast and to see the beauty of the gospel uh, leap off the page in that regard. And then secondly, we looked at the evidences of quote unquote first love in the earliest days of the Ephesian church, a love which Jesus roughly 40 years later would go on to rebuke the church in Ephesus for abandoning. You can read about that in Revelation chapter two. It was a reminder to us of the significance of never ceasing to ponder the first love that God has for us in Jesus Christ, knowing that it's his gracious and immeasurable first love toward us that fills our hearts with first love for him. This morning, we continue our time in the city of Ephesus. Paul hasn't left the city yet. We see the the spread of the gospel leading to one of the most intense moments in all of the book of Acts here in chapter 19. Picking up the story in verse 21, it says this. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Okay, Paul decides to visit the churches that he planted on his second missionary journey and then travel to Jerusalem before heading to Rome for what some would call his fourth missionary journey, which is where the book of Acts actually comes to a close in chapter 28. But before he continues on this present third missionary journey, he puts pen to paper and writes 1 Corinthians and sends it with his friends, Timothy and Erastus, to Corinth while remaining in Ephesus just a little while longer. And this is what we're told happens as Paul stays in the city of Ephesus. Verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, that is Jesus, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. I mentioned last week that Ephesus was a city filled with temples dedicated to Roman emperors, men like Claudius and Augustus and Julius uh, Caesar, those that we studied so long ago in grade school, city filled with people who practiced magic arts going back to a couple of Sundays ago. 
It was the home of the, the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis up on the screen. I spent most of my week painting this picture for you guys so that you could <laughs> see what this looked like. And then I realized, Google Images, I could have gone there. JK. Artemis was the goddess of the moon, the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of fertility. She eventually became known as the goddess of business as the broader language of fertility became associated with the fertility of the ground, the harvest, this idea of provision. You see it in the story of Acts 19 itself, this morning's passage, the temple of Artemis having become a hub of of vibrant commerce, you might say. Verse 35 will go on to tell us that the establishment of Artemis worship came in light of a falling meteorite, which became associated with the image of Artemis having fallen from the cosmos. You can just imagine the the droves and droves of people who came to see the great meteorite along with the glory of the temple itself. Like Disney, it was one of those places that everyone had a burning desire to at least visit once in their lifetime. The temple of Artemis was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, bringing in thousands upon thousands of worshipers from all over the place, masses of people enthralled with this sanctuary that had the appearance of ascending into the heavens, as you can see in that picture. Ancient Greek poet named Antipater of Sidon, the one who actually compiled the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world, he he once said this, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alphaeus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. Just take the pyramids, okay? Remove everything else from that list and think about the the wonder of, of the pyramids of Egypt and then consider what he's saying here. All of these things on this list lost their splendor when I saw the temple of Artemis with my own eyes. And then you can imagine just what this temple would have done in the hearts of so many. You have all these people coming into the city of Ephesus to see the great meteorite and the great temple. And as you can imagine, the temple became incredibly wealthy with all the tourism, as did those who made their money in the commerce associated with Artemis worship. So much so that the temple became one of the great financial centers in all of Asia, one of the biggest banks. All of a sudden, Acts 19, the apostle Paul shows up and a riot ensues. Why is that? What is it the the apostle Paul says or does that sends practically the entire city into an uproar? Why is the the magic kingdom all of a sudden not so magical? And the answer is simple. Paul confronted the idols. As we've seen him do in cities throughout the book of Acts, Paul challenges the idols of Ephesus. This is one of the few times, interestingly, in the book of Acts that we don't actually get any sort of discourse. We don't get the quoted words of the apostle Paul or any of his friends Verse 26 simply tells us implicitly that Paul was persuading people to turn away from idol worship, declaring that gods made with hands are not gods. Paul looks out on this sea of graven images throughout the city, throughout the temple, and he declares their absolute powerlessness. 
Reminds me a lot of Isaiah 44, a very famous passage where Isaiah exposes the folly of idolatry. He says this, Isaiah 44, picking up in verse 14. He says, the carpenter cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it and then it becomes fuel for a man. Now listen to this, the distinction. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Again, the contrast, half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest, contrast, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. Seems so primitive, doesn't it? Why would anyone bow down to a block of wood? Who would be foolish enough to do that? Why was that so popular in biblical times? Still popular in parts of the world today. I think the answer is this. Graven images allow man to manipulate and control the power of the divine. Think about it. The image represents the deity. If you can get the the image of the deity in front of you and perform just the right rituals in front of the image, the deity is now indebted to do what you want. It's a way of taming the divine. It's a way of capturing lightning in a bottle, you might say, of bringing the, the power of the divine into one's submission. Coming back to this morning's passage, Not only does the Apostle Paul expose the folly of worshiping carved images, he declares that they're powerless because the gods representing them are are no gods at all. And now you start to see why a guy like Demetrius would, would be put into a panic, a guy who makes his living making silver shrines of Artemis. Not just religious trinkets for tourists visiting the city, but objects used in family worship in the home. Paul's not... He's not preaching a gospel that allows people to live as they've always lived, which can and does get preached in our context at times. Come and and grab hold of this Jesus and hang on to everything else that you've loved and and keep it on the windowsill with all of your other idols. Paul's not preaching a gospel that allows people to remain the same as though you can have Jesus and hang on to everything else at a place of ultimacy, Paul confronts the idols in Ephesus and it poses a serious threat to the city and not just religiously, but economically. Demetrius's shrine-making business is in serious jeopardy here, as is the, the seeming livelihood of many others in the city, not to mention the diminishment of the worship of Artemis herself. And so Demetrius appeals to the emotions of those in the crowd, which I would say many commercials that we watch on TV do the same thing. Demetrius appeals to the emotions of those in the crowd, accusing Paul of taking food off the table for them and their families, calling them to fight for their livelihood. But he goes even further, declaring Paul and his gospel to be a threat to the city, their identity, and their heritage. I mean, imagine if Orlando no longer has a Disney World. All of a sudden, some of the pride about being a citizen of that place is lost, right? It's certainly about religion and money, but it's about so much more. Verse 28 gives us the response of the crowd. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, 
Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, but some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Listen to this. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We're talking about a theater that could seat roughly 24,000 people. It was a place where citywide business meetings would take place, among other things. And here you have this crowd coming in filled with confusion. Some of them not even sure why they're there in the first place. Screaming at the top of their lungs for hours on end. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, probably losing their voices like many of us have done at sporting events or concerts along the way. That's what idolatry does, does it not? It leads to confusion. It leads to anger. It leads to irrational thinking. Remember, we're talking about a means of taming the divine here of capturing lightning in a bottle, of bringing the power of the divine into one's submission. When an idol is threatened, it always comes with a feeling sense of control turning to chaos, which helps to explain the the response of anger and and even violence. Whatever it takes to gain back control with white-knuckled fists, and you'll sling those fists at someone if you have to. Here's how we know that the atmosphere here in the Ephesian theater is incredibly dangerous because even the Asiarchs, here's who the Asiarchs were. They were an affluent, powerful group of men elected to promote the worship of the emperor. Even those guys won't let Paul enter the theater, having become buddies with him, which as a side note shows the influence that Paul had in the city. He had the marketing team for emperor worship fighting for his life with him. This is an intense atmosphere people shouting at the top of their lungs for hours on end, so that we're told in verse 35, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore... Verse 38, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone. The courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. You begin to see why in God's providence, Paul was kept out of the theater, right? Highly unlikely that Paul wouldn't have spoken up when when it was said that nothing that Paul was saying was sacrilegious or blaspheming of the goddess of Artemis. Paul most certainly would have been accused of speaking up and dishonoring Artemis and whatever he said in that theater. God's not done with Paul yet, and so Paul's kept from bringing the gauntlet down on himself, essentially. Instead, the town clerk declares that there's no place for Demetrius' charges in this theater, that he and his supporters, they can take it up with the appropriate authorities if they so wish, 
But the reality, here's essentially what he says. Christianity is no threat to the stability of this city. That in fact, the greatest threat to the city is actually the rioting of those whose idols have been threatened. That threats to idols create violence and irrationality, which exposes the folly of the idols themselves. It's the Apostle Paul and his friends who are the steady ones. We see this throughout the book of Acts, right? In the midst of this hostile crowd filled with confusion and anger. And the result is that similar to the verdict in Acts chapter 18, for the second time, Roman law protects Paul and his ministry so that the gospel is allowed to continue forth. It's a really fascinating episode in the book of Acts, isn't it? In a fascinating city. You can just imagine Just get this picture in your mind, the marketplace, the temple, walking around, seeing little silver statues of Artemis everywhere, to your left, to your right, right in front of you. Again, sounds so primitive, doesn't it? To have a God for everything, really? The God of beauty, the God of war, the God of fertility, the God of business, And yet I would argue that it's actually incredibly intuitive of the Greco-Roman people. They had a God for everything because anything can become a God. Anything can become an idol. Every individual community or culture that's not bowed down to God will be bowed down to someone or something, some created person or thing, some functional savior, oftentimes a, a good thing that's been elevated to a place of ultimacy. Tim Keller, who has essentially become the living guru on the topic of idolatry, having written his book, Counterfeit Gods, which by the way, is just a a robbery of of, uh, David Clarkson, the Puritan, who speaks on these very same things. There's nothing new under the sun. Keller says this, he says, any life that is not built on God's glory and grace is going to be built on the deification of something else. It's going to be built on turning something else into a pseudo savior, some way in which you save yourself without having to go to God so that you think you're keeping control of your life, but you're really not. I can think of so many idols that are prevalent in our hearts, in our community, in our culture. I'm convinced that Paul would not be bored. He would not be lacking for opportunities to minister in our day and age. I didn't have enough room to make a slide. I can think of so many idols. There's the idol of family. There's the idol of sex. There's the idol of money. The idol of career. There's the idol of achievement. And the idol of power. There's the idol of social standing. There's the idol of comfort. There's the idol of some political or social cause. There's the idol of morality and the idol of beauty, and the idol of romance, and let's not forget the idol of control, and the idol of fame, and the idol of a perfect home, and the idol of recreation, and even the idol of ministry success. The gospel challenges our idolatries just as much as the idolatries of Ephesus. The things that we look to to ultimately give us meaning and purpose in life, value, so that, and this is where it gets a little strong this morning, so brace yourself, so that if you've ever taken money and made it ultimate in your life, you've worshiped Artemis. If you've ever taken beauty or romance 
and made any of those things ultimate in your life, you've worshiped Aphrodite. If you've ever pushed your kids to the wayside in order to advance your career, in order to make more money because success and money and achievement are ultimate in your life, then you've committed child sacrifice to appease your gods. And some of us have done the exact opposite, right? Many of us in our context, we've actually made our kids the idol. We've taken our children and elevated them to a place where our ultimate meaning in life is rooted in them, our ultimate hope, our ultimate source of significance and identity, our greatest sense of value. And here's the crazy thing of it all. When we elevate our our kids to a place of ultimacy, we actually crush them under a weight that they cannot bear, nor were they ever intended to, so that we destroy the very ones that we love. Is that not crazy? My hope this morning is that every one of us in this place walks away with a new, newfound sense of freedom and joy. It would be very easy, very easy, to look at a passage like this and to think about it in the same way that our first parents, Adam and Eve, thought about that one tree that was off limits. And to fail to see all of the other trees, all of the other sources of joy and pleasure that God has given us, that if we rightly bring these things that are ultimate in our lives back into their right place of good things rather than God things, that the playground is so much more enjoyable, the playground of life to live. Where there's the absence of conviction this morning, I'm okay with a little bristling if I can be brutally honest with you, That tells me I'm probably preaching in line with what's in the scriptures, right? Not so much a verbal rioting, I wouldn't expect that. I think all of us have enough social wherewithal in the 21st century American church not to stand up in an auditorium and go, how dare you, who do you think you are? I do expect maybe there'd be a little feather ruffling, maybe some going home and over lunch, like you believe that guy, what a moron. Or let's go search for a different church where they don't confront our idols. Though you wouldn't use the word idols, right? No, our writing is a little more subtle. Idols are oftentimes not bad things, but good things made ultimate. And so the danger, and hear this, it's so subtle. The danger is that we'll take things that are ultimate in our lives, categorically idols in our lives, and we'll emphasize the fact that that those things are good things, which they oftentimes are, in order to avoid repenting of our idolatry. And so we'll say, how dare you talk about kids that way? How dare you talk about money or career that way? Kids are a great thing. Money is a great thing that can be used for so many other good things. And you know what? When we take ultimate things in our lives, idols, and we talk about them that way, we're standing with a crowd in the theater of Ephesus. What are the words being shouted among that crowd? Great is Artemis. Great are children. Great are romantic relationships. Great is money, which can be leveraged for so many things that are good. Great is Artemis. Great is Aphrodite. It's just deceptive enough that we can take our ultimate things in life and we can lie to ourselves and others about it for years. And it's ultimately to our own destruction when we do that. And listen, I'm preaching to the choir here. Believe me when I say that I have my own battles with idolatry. For me, probably the very same things that are true for you. Money, because it can buy me comfort, which is a deeper root idol, so I get a two-for-one special there. 
my kids because those chubby cheeks, really hard not to put them on a divine pedestal. Right? Nothing wrong with loving those things, something terribly wrong with worshiping those things. And that's the distinction here. It's all around us. Even the shrines, believe it or not. So that if you worship Aphrodite, meaning that you make beauty ultimate, then you have your shrines just like the Ephesians. They're likely the mirrors of your home or every storefront window that you pass by and look at yourself in. If you worship your children, your shrines become things like the collage of pictures that you have on Facebook, every post that you make with the hope that people will worship alongside of you. Those are our shrines. See, we we look at passages like Acts chapter 19, and we think of the Ephesian people as so primitive with their little statues. How uncivilized of you with your little gods that you bring into your homes. But we do the same thing, do we not? There's nothing new under the sun. We manifest it differently, but it's so eerily one and the same at a heart level with what we see in this morning's passage that when we're not bowed down to the God of glory and grace, as Keller says, we will bow down to something. We were designed to worship, Romans 1. We cannot help ourselves. We, like those in Ephesus, we trust in empty, powerless, created things to rescue us, to give us meaning and worth. And because the hole in our hearts, excuse the cliche, is God-shaped, no idol will ever fully satisfy our deepest longings. The idol of family, disappointed by a wayward child. The idol of sex, disappointed by a spouse, not in the mood. The idol of money, disappointed by co-pays and tire replacements. The idol of achievement, disappointed by a promotion not received. The idol of social standing, disappointed by not getting invited to a party, even if you got invited to the last 11. The idol of comfort, disappointed by the grass that always needs mowing, amen? The idol of beauty, disappointed by age. None of us can escape that one. The idol of fame, disappointed by someone forgetting your name. The idol of a perfect home, disappointed by something as small as dust. The idol of recreation, disappointed by rain. Those are just a few examples that I can think of of the way that idols leave us wanting. When we take those good things and we make them ultimate such that we have to have them and we'll be devastated without them if they fail us. To which you might say, well, you know what? Jesus has let me down plenty of times too. To which I would say, perhaps he simply failed to give you your idol. Some of us, myself included, you know your idolatrous tendencies all too well, particularly if you've been a part of this church for any significant period of time. We'll help you get under the the hood for sure. Others of us need to do a little diagnostic work. And so you might ask, how do we diagnose our idols? What What does that look like? How can we confront them if we don't know what they are? To which I would say I could present you with a a dozen different diagnostic questions. I would would encourage you to go back and listen to our 1 Corinthians series, chapter 10, the the sermon on fleeing idolatry. It's a more comprehensive version of this sermon in terms of the diagnostic piece of it all. But I'll just give you a couple of questions this morning that come to mind that are in line with what we see in this morning's passage. Question one, what is it that if threatened might provoke you to anger like the Ephesian crowd? And alongside of that, what is it that if threatened might lead you to confusion and irrational thinking? Right? If you sit long enough with those kind of questions, 
you just might come face to face with an idol, a functional savior. The threatening of our idols almost always leads to anger and irrational thinking. Our way of trying to, again, bring chaos back into control somehow. All the while, just like what we see in the theater of Ephesus, our anger and irrationality exposing the folly of our idols themselves. And so you might ask at this point, man, Jamie, this is heavy. Acts chapter 19 is a heavy load to bear. Where is the hope in a passage like this? If you've been around at all, you, you know where I'm going with this, right? The answer is Jesus, <laughs> right? The hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Destroying idols is incredibly risky, right? When you think about it, idols are both powerless and unbelievably powerful, right? They're, they're nothing in that they're empty and worthless and powerless to give you what you want, and yet there's something in that they have the power to destroy you. They're powerless, and yet through them, the powers of sin and evil control us, which is why we're so desperate for Jesus. It's why the gospel is such good news, right? Here in Acts 19, we see Paul, and throughout the book of Acts, risking his life in order to defeat the darkness of idolatry, and yet it's Jesus who didn't risk his life, but gave his life in order to defeat that darkness. That Jesus not only bore our idolatry in his body on the tree, which we could, again, we could just stop right there and sit with that reality and soak in it, and we would never get caught up fully in the wonder of it all, would we? That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Try to get your mind around the height of God's love, the depth of God's love, the breadth of God's love. We're gonna spend an eternity doing that. Jesus bore your idolatry in his body on the tree so that you and I, idolaters that we are, could be reconciled to God, declared faithful Adulterers, idolaters declared faithful in Christ without God compromising his righteousness in the process. But not only that, Jesus also delivered the death blow to the domain of darkness. Satan, sin, and death, they're bleeding out. We have resurrection power with which to face our idols, to stare them down into war against them. It's why our, our doctrine of the third person of the Godhead needs to be solidified when we fail to understand the truth of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the reality of what it means that the same Spirit of God is alive and at work today that was alive and at work in the book of Acts, we, we miss the power that we've been given. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and gave us the Spirit, he wasn't just giving us the presence of God in light of his departure. He was also giving us the very power of God indwelling us. It always comes back to the gospel because it's the beauty of the gospel that cripples the power of idols in our hearts. Only the gospel has the power to not only expose our idols, but to destroy them. And in doing so, the very fabric of society begins to change in a really beautiful way. As we repurpose our relationship with our kids, no longer worshiping them, but rather enjoying them as good gifts from God to steward for his glory. As we repurpose our view of the workplace, no longer worshiping money and achievement, but leveraging those things for the glory of God. And on and on and on we could go. 
If only Demetrius and his friends had understood that silver doesn't have to be used to fashion idols, right? It can be repurposed. Aphrodite must die, but not beauty. Artemis must die, but not business and commerce. See, we get, to, we get to take those very things that we once worshiped and show the world that Christ is sovereign over all of them in submission to him as the one true king, as the one true God. And in doing so, he gets the glory and we get the greater freedom and joy. The question is, will we look at a passage like this and see it the way our first parents saw the one tree that was off limits? Or will we see the great gift that God has given us in freeing us from our idols so that we can enjoy all of these good things that have the danger of becoming ultimate, just like our first parents had the opportunity to enjoy every one of those trees outside of the one? Will we walk out of here believing that and thus experience the freedom and joy that God intends for us to taste and know as his sons and daughters? In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship in a number of ways as we do each and every week here. One of those ways being communion. You'll notice there's a table to my left and my right. There's one in the back of the auditorium by the coffee table. From the time I step off this stage to the end of this service, those tables are open. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. Just invite you this morning to sit with the wonder of the phrase, Jesus, you bore my idolatry in your body on the tree. Just to pause long enough for that to wash over you and then come and receive the elements of communion. There'll be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with and for you if you wanna take advantage of that. If you wanna, as a way of responding to such a passage, such a message as this, if you wanna come alongside someone else and say, I've got idols and I wanna confess them to the Lord. I don't wanna turn from those idols and I want someone else to, to hear this moment with me. Go to the back of the auditorium, engage someone sitting beside you and talk through that and pray through that. And then James and Lydia will come back up and they'll lead us in worship through song as we sing to this one God who is alone worthy to, to sit on the throne of our lives. As we see his character, his redemptive work, his attributes put on display on that screen and we get to sing these things to him.